Welcome to Season 4 of Tales of the Lesser Medium, a podcast that pokes fun at video game narratives. Each season, me, Caleb J. Ross, and my co-host... Whew, I am, I am getting ripped after being in the, the Gears universe. I'm just doing push-ups constantly. I have gone to the gym three or four times today. Wow, three or four, to, huh? No, oh, today. Okay. Today. Mm, got it. I've been working on my lats, my glutes, mm-hmm. my pelts, my tries, my buys. I have a really strong chape. My bork Ooh. is getting some definition to it, <laughs> and so is my gormley. I'm getting really good. And by the way, the gormley, it's right underneath your uh, your areola there. Gives it a little definition. Oh. Google it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this this series full of very strong dudes made me want to be a very strong dude. Hopefully, by the time we get to episode four, I'm so strong you just won't believe it. You won't you won't recognize me. <laughs> <laughs> wow, all that talk of getting strong. I, I my my own glort muscle is now turgid as hell. Yeah. So uh thanks for that. Yeah. Anyway, that was Travis. Yes, that was Travis, <laughs> my co-host. We'll be taking you through our favorite video game franchise narratives, interjecting with humorous skits and commentary along the way to make you laugh and to make us a little bit hornier for video games. <laughs> because nothing keeps the bone soup a juicing more than picking apart the thing that's got us turgid in the first place. Wow. It's like, it's like that time Travis uh, was asked to leave the Harbor Freight tools because he kept licking one of the crowbars. Just one. And when I tried telling him that a crowbar isn't a girlfriend, he just, you know, got hornier and made a move with his free hand down to the nail slot of the bent claw end. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, we could have been happy together. <laughs> yep, one of you could have been, man. <laughs> In season one, we shotgunned through Resident Evil, specifically games one, two, three, and zero. Then we followed up with a season two where we dual pistoled the first four Tomb Raider games. After that... We beat the Half-Life narrative to death with Gordon Freeman's own crowbar. And why is it that Gordon Freeman can date a crowbar, but I can't? Gears of War, known these days simply as Gears, released on the Xbox 360 on November 7th, 2006. A slightly different version released in summer of 2007 on the PC, but today's tale will focus on the Xbox 360 version. All right. The Gears franchise is best known for its third-person shooter mechanics and cover system, as well as having over-the-top, personality-rich characters and menacing, grotesque enemies. Gears of War is considered among the best co-op campaign franchises ever. This series will cover the narrative of the original trilogy that spanned the Xbox 360 and will include Gears of War Judgment, the fourth entry into the series technically considered a spin-off prequel. Right. And this is a series, I admit, isn't for everyone. It comes across as being like overly steeped in machismo and just being a shallow excuse to create tons of monsters and gore. And and yeah, that is why it's awesome. Beneath the surface, though, as we'll find, there's a pretty fleshed out narrative here. This franchise is near and dear to my heart as I made a lot of lifelong pals through playing hours of Gears over the years. And I can't wait to dig in to this ridiculous story. And it's worth noting some key names in the development of the franchise. First, of course, is Cliff Blazinski, who had previously worked on Epic's Unreal Tournament. Games like Resident Evil 4, Kill Switch, and Bionic Commando inspired his design and concepts for Gears. Cliff, or Cliffy B, as he is affectionately known, is noticeable for having one of the stronger, let's say, personalities in the industry, and also one of the stronger commercial failures with his most <laughs> recent game, Lawbreakers which had its servers shut down about one year after launch. Oh, Cliffy B. That's just efficiency, I think. But Cliff has come across <laughs> as being a spiky-haired douche nozzle who rubs people the wrong way. Ultimately, though, he's just outspoken and has early 2000s cool uncle vibes. I'm honestly a little jealous myself. Then there's Rod Ferguson. 
executive producer and director of Epic Games at the time of the original trilogy. Ferguson took over the helm after Cliffy B moved on and Rod was around for the release of Gears of War 4 and most recently Gears 5 in 2019. In 2020, Ferguson moved over to Blizzard Entertainment to oversee the development of the Diablo series. During Ferguson's time, the development of Gears fell under a new studio, The Coalition, formerly known as Black Tusk Studios. The Gears franchise is expected to endure despite the absence of the original frontmen, Blazinski and Ferguson. And it's truly cool that Gears has maintained its luster over the years. It's a series that isn't afraid to drop out main characters for the sake of story, and it's been consistent in what it does despite changing leadership and development teams over the years. It's like when a band gets a new lead singer. Is it mm -hmm. still the same band? They mm. always sound a little different. Well... Not Gears, really. It's been pretty true to its original concept all these years and still finds ways to innovate as it goes. Yeah, the franchise is sort of a good argument in the Ship of Theseus debate. You know, that old debate, if you replace all the parts of a ship one by one, is it still the same ship? Gears of War shows that, yes, it can still be the same ship. Right on. Our sources for today include our own playthroughs as well as the GearsofWar.Fandom.com wiki website. All right. Now, let's get into the original Gears of War game. You're Marcus Phoenix, a former soldier. From inside your dank cell, you can see monsters, creatures trying to break through the grate in the ceiling above to spill in and devour you. You're trapped in prison, nowhere to go. Suddenly, the peephole on the door slides open, and a familiar face appears. It's Dominic Santiago, your close friend, and he's here to bust you out. Where have you been? The door swings open, and Dominic gives you a bag of gear and tells you to suit up. You try to convince Dominic that aiding this escape is going to mean trouble, but Dominic tells you that the rest of the prison is empty. He says that someone named Hoffman pardoned everyone else due to the invasion, and you, Marcus Phoenix, are not surprised to hear this, and so you exit the cell with Dominic. Marcus Phoenix gives so few fucks about anything. You'll never hear him say anything like, <laughs> hey, thank you for uh, letting me out of prison, or anything sweet like that. He's not capable. <laughs> Wait, what about something like, like, uh, I appreciate that, or, you know, I owe you for that. Can, can he do that? Oh, well, let me see. I can, I can try it here. Um, <clears throat> Listen, uh, I really appreciate... <laughs> oh. Oh, 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 sorry. Hey, pal, uh, listen, I, I really could... Oh, 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 oh you're oh. not... A, you, you, got, you got less far in the word that time somehow. Woo. Woo. You, ha you had the appree, appree right? Let's, yeah. let's break it up. How about a... How about a... Can you say C? Like, hey, look at that frothy C over there. <laughs> Hey, fuck oh. you. Oh. <laughs> can't even do that. Huh? Do that has nothing to do with manners and you still can't do that. All I right. can't oh. say things you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it is. We finally, we finally cracked the nut on this one. Not good <laughs> it has nothing to do with. Just awful at it. <laughs> <laughs> switching, switching to third person as soon as they leave the cell, Dominic gives Phoenix two choices. They can either march through the prison and engage in the fight or go back the way Dominic came through the guards' quarters, which is considered safer, but will take a long time. Phoenix, thirsting for confrontation after having been locked away for so long, chooses to march through the prison blocks, guns blazing. Not soon after, Phoenix and Dominic are engaged by a small horde of disgusting monsters, but these are more militant and sophisticated than the ones clawing atop the prison cell earlier. They don thick armor and wield automatic weapons of their own. Phoenix takes cover and carefully fires on the first two enemies, dispatching them easily. It's easy to tell at this point that Phoenix is familiar with these enemies. 
The story is started in the middle, or at least not at the very beginning of this invasion of grotesque, brooding enemies. Phoenix needs no explanation as to what is going on and understands the perils at play. We are currently left to wonder what these enemy creatures are, where did they come from, and why was Marcus Phoenix locked away in prison? The, the first Gears of War game came pre-packed with tons of existing lore. Here's what is important to know, though. This all takes place on a planet called Sarah. There's a resource underground called Emulsion, spelled with an I, despite our text editors thinking it should begin with an E. What do these text editors know about the planet Sarah anyway, you know? At some point, the countries who had Emulsion within their borders were prosperous and wealthy, while those who did not were kind of boned. And this kicked off a war. A big old long war. This war lasted 79 years and is called the Pendulum Wars. We can assume there was a lot of back and forth going on there. Sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> it's a clever name. The war was fought between the good guys, the Coalition of Ordered Governments, or COG, COG. <laughs> get it? Like a gear COG. Yeah, I get that. And the Union of Independent Republics, or UIR. Get it? Like a urinary tract infection. But it's a UTI, not a UIR. Ah, you are correct. The UIR developed the plans for a devastating weapon, the Hammer of Dawn. The COG, I'm just going to say COG, the COG, stole those plans and threatened the UIR. I'm just going to say <laughs> with attacking them, with it, leading to the Irar's surrender and the end of the war. Uh, got you fuckers. But also, this backstory <laughs> is only here to set up and explain why these people on these planets are so militant out the gate and have all these incredibly advanced weapons. Like, if the Locust showed up here now on Earth, like right now, we'd all be dead in a week. But on Sarah, there's multiple generations of highly trained soldiers and enough military technology to put up a solid fight immediately, setting the stage for our world here and our story. And here's where the locusts come in, the monsters we're fighting. Six weeks after the end of the 79-year war, also called the Pendulum War, the locusts spewed from the ground and attacked all civilization. They didn't care if you were cog or ear or bi or cis or <laughs> the day this happened is called Emergence Day or E-Day. Spelled with an I. No. Every major city was attacked and destroyed. Massive human casualties were suffered. The humans fought the locusts as they had fought each other for an entire year before deciding, hey, let's just use the hammer of dawn we were threatening each other with. Huh? So they did that. Huh. I like how they took pot shots at each other for 80 years, and then one year into this, they're like, you know what? Fuck it. Just blow my shit up. I'm sick of this. That makes it sound like the locusts were just living underground and no one knew. It does sound like that. Well, that's not the case. You see, they are actually people who were poisoned by regular contact with emulsion and then mutated. They were then imprisoned and tested on by scientists. Yay, go scientists. Always doing cool and smart stuff like that. You gotta love it. Well, no, no. See, over time, the locusts assimilated, created underground cities, and even warred with themselves. Things around here sure like fighting, don't they? <laughs> Indeed they do. Our next episode will dig in a little deeper on how the locusts operate. My guess is probably peeling themselves out of their skin on tree trunks every summer and really mm -hmm. grossing me out as a child. 17 years, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's my guess. That's my guess. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm thinking cicadas. They're the same thing. Fuck them. Our next episode will dig in a little deeper on how the locusts operate. But for now, it's only necessary to know that they are controlled via a hive mind system. And so they respond to a queen. So anyway, they emerge on E-Day. Then a year later, the COG chairman, basically the president, decides he has to use the Hammer of Dawn as the locusts march on the capital city. The Hammer of Dawn attack wipes out 90% of every living thing on Sarah, human or non. That sounds bad. So he killed everyone and made it worse. Well, people were told to retreat to a place called the Jacinto Plateau. 
that was set up atop a giant geographical area with a granite-like surface that locusts could not dig through. Ah, and only a few people didn't make it back to this big rock then. (laughs) A whole lot of people didn't make it to the big rock. Bummer. Indeed. And this wasn't just one hammer of Dawn Strike. We'll use that weapon a few times in our narrative today, and it only barely wipes out city blocks. Uh, It turns out that this attack was a series of orbital strikes, which killed almost everything except what was on Jacinto Plateau. Jacinto Plateau. I will never say that correctly. We're going to say J Plateau. That place sounds nice. (laughs) It is J Plateau. Uh, By comparison, at least to the rest of the post-orbital stricken planet. Sure. So civilization has to rebuild itself on this big fat rock while Mm -hmm. continuing to stave off vicious attacks from locusts that were underground when the Hammer of Dawn strikes commenced? That is correct. Oh, boy. And I know what you're thinking. How do they plant food in the ground when living on a rock? I am thinking that, yes. (laughs) It's a good question. Moving on. So now we'll take this time to quickly dig deeper into Marcus Phoenix a little bit more. Marcus Michael Phoenix is a former cog soldier or gear Get it? Gears and, and gears and cogs? <laughs> yes, we all get it. Marcus served in the Pendulum Wars, and he was awarded the highest military honor for his actions. According to his entry on Gearspedia.com, he stands at six foot one. He's characterized by his chiseled looks. He has a strong jaw, a gruff voice, wears a do-rag, and proudly wields the popular facial hair of 2006, a soul patch. He's noted for being very brave, yet reasonable, intelligent, and no nonsense in his leadership style. Man, he's like me if I had any of that other stuff besides the do-rag. <laughs> I do like my do-rag, and I did have a soul patch for about 15 years. Had a couple of people compliment me on it one time in 2002. <laughs> that was all it took for me to keep it until 2017. <laughs> but then I kept leaving soup in it, and my wife didn't think that was okay, so it's gone. <laughs> I have a mullet now, though, so <laughs> I'm still Much cool. better. I'm still cool. Yeah. <laughs> so back to the story. As they make their way through the prison, more enemies emerge, and another aspect becomes clear. Everything around them is destroyed. Giant concrete and stone columns lay broken and scattered along the main floor, no longer serving their intended purpose of support, but now instead serve as a cover for our heroes to hide behind in a firefight. Or they still act as columns, but in an M.C. Escher painting. Hmm. Cover fighting is one of Gears of War's most notable features. It is made clear that this ugly enemy has wrecked havoc here already and must be a very deadly force to have caused this much destruction. Or this much art because of the M.C. Escher comment. All right. In the prison courtyard, Dom and Marcus are met with even more resistance and utilize the fallen debris as cover to wipe out the insurgents. Dominic uses his radio to call for an extraction by helicopter. The pilot responds and can be seen approaching nearby. Oh, no, 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 no. Moments later, as Phoenix and Dominic continue their firefight, they see their chopper catch fire and spin out of control, crashing nearby. And there it goes. (laughs) A second chopper isn't far behind and lands nearby. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) This game obviously hasn't listened to an episode of Tales of Lesser Media. (laughs) Phoenix and Dominic sprint toward it as the ground beneath them begins to furiously quake and rip apart. Just as they enter the craft, an enormous spider-like behemoth creature rips through the ground and grabs their feet, missing only by inches. And there it goes. (laughs) Not quite, no. See, they manage to escape, and the second chopper flies them out to safety. Hmm? Huh, you don't see that every day around here. While in the chopper, another member of the military unit that Dominic appears to be a member of welcomes Marcus to the Delta Squad. The unnamed soldier tells Phoenix they are headed to a location called Embry Square and says Colonel Hoffman will be waiting for them. 
If you recall from earlier, Hoffman had pardoned all of the prisoners except for Phoenix, leaving him inside the abandoned prison to die. Phoenix responds, Hoffman, ah, shit. To which Dominic responds sarcastically, "Eh, This is going to be awesome. (laughs) But why? (laughs) How's that? How is that going to be awesome? Have you seen seen Hoffman's collection of baseball cards? Whoa! And I think he brings them with him everywhere, including into battle. Well, that's dumb. But this guy's an (laughs) asshole. He wanted me to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wanted you to die because if he didn't, if he didn't leave quick, more quickly, he might not have been able to get his 1992 Bowman Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card out in time. It was either you or the rookie card, MF. Okay, I, I mean, I'm going to start calling you MF. I know it's, it's a new thing I'm testing out, but I think you'll like it. Can you really blame him though? I don't even think that was Griffey's rookie year. He's lying. <laughs> He's I don't know, man. Play. He's a liar. He's a liar twice because he he let it, he he said he was going to let me out with the other prisoners. And he left me in there, and I just I was in there by myself. And there's a bunch of monsters that was scary. I was scared. <laughs> well, then you should be thanking him for keeping you in the prison cell safe <laughs> from all of the monsters. Okay. <laughs> Did you fart? That's what we call a callback in the comedy world. <laughs> that happened in previous episodes. Oh man, I, you know what? I, I don't think I don't think I don't think Hoffman was lying about that Bowman rookie card. At least I hope he's not, because uh, a certain young host of this podcast once had that card, and it was like his most prized possession ever because he thought it was he thought he was hot shit. Because at the time, according to Bicket Bucket Burkett, whatever the name of that magazine was, Beckett. Um, yeah, Beckett. Was that it? Beckett? The one you didn't say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Blurkett. According to Blurkett, uh, it was worth like $16, and that was like $16 more than any other card on Earth was worth. So I don't if think it, you want to explain that to a young Caleb that, that Hoffman is lying about that. Yeah, I just looked it up. If you if you owned a 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. star rookie card right now in mint condition – uh, it's selling. It's a buy it now, but it's selling for twelve thousand four hundred ninety nine dollars. So yeah, because eighty nine wasn't his rookie year, so it's a, it's a, it's a misprint. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's <laughs> weird. There's several like it. Interesting. They're going for a lot of money. Okay, look up look up ninety two. No, don't do that because we're fucking recording this episode. God damn it. <laughs> Let me look up a nineteen. No, go ahead. I, I do appreciate how you tried to bury the actual year of the thing to make it sound like that I wasn't wrong. You were just like, oh, here's a, you know, 1989, and then you rattled off a bunch of details about it, hoping that I might forget that you slyly said, no, Caleb, you're wrong. It was, it was 1989. I was trying to be polite. Um, so somehow I thank you for that. Mm-hmm. So another soldier in the fight, wearing a headgear that occludes his face, turns in astonishment. Are you the Marcus Phoenix? The one who fought in Asfo Fields? Marcus affirms, and the soldier seems impressed before turning his attention back toward the ground and continues to pick off enemies with his sniper rifle. We now know Marcus Phoenix is a known name to many. A former hero, perhaps? Maybe from a good lineage? Yeah, yeah, as foe fields, I fought in that. And meanwhile, he shoves a Playgirl magazine where he's the centerfold further under his seat. (laughs) I was also in that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Asheville Fields, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I didn't fight, but I, I was there in a, in a way, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of dudes were taking me with them everywhere they went, yeah. You know, some people said that I was uh, I was, I was like a, an enigma because I was just everywhere, you know? <laughs> I, I could be anywhere, <laughs> all places, all at once, you know? Yeah, both sides of the war had 
Had a lot of interest in me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once landed, Phoenix is greeted by Colonel Hoffman, just a few feet from exiting the plane. Hoffman calls Phoenix a traitor and tells him he doesn't deserve to be wearing a uniform. Would you like me to strip naked here, sir? It's <laughs> <laughs> what I used to do back in Asheville Field, so I could do, I could do it again here. <laughs> uh, Phoenix tells him he's willing to help defend against the horde of enemies, but Hoffman tells him to step aside. Hoffman walks away and tells another lieutenant that he has a plan to end the war once and for all. But before he can add details, bullets rain down all around them and everyone flees to cover. Hmm. Hoffman, from his cover, yells that he needs the enemy targeting data so he can use the light bomb to wipe out their tunnels and kill those sons of bitches where they live. Which is underground, of course. In order for the light bomb to work, they'll need a thing called a resonator. That becomes the first mission. They must locate the Alpha Team and rescue them. Alpha Team has the resonator. Mission 1? Get the resonator. Yeah. Hoffman's like, hey, remember when we used a lot of bombs to wipe out most of civilization and achieved nothing aside from cornering ourselves on a rock while a bunch of mud <laughs> demons continued to try to murder us? I was thinking maybe we do that same thing underground and really fuck this planet up. I mean, who needs a planet? What are they even for? If we get rid of the planet, we get rid of the locusts. It's that simple. Am I right? Am I right? Uh, 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 sir, sir, uh, qu question, sir. Um, I vote to keep the planet, sir. I mean, that's where uh, I keep my stuff. That's not a question, Private. So your permission to ask a question is denied. <laughs> After successfully fending off that initial onslaught, Hoffman comes back to Phoenix, presumably noticing that he put a sizable dent in the insurgents just then and tells him he expects 110% out of him, thus bringing him back on board as a soldier, despite calling him a traitor less than two minutes prior. Hmm. With that bit of satisfaction, Phoenix returns his attention to the next wave of incoming enemies. Phoenix and three other soldiers, one being Dominic, push forward through the city and the destroyed ancient crumbling architecture that remains of it, wiping out the armed creatures with heavy doses of machine gun fire and grenades. Hell yeah. From a high ledge, the Delta Squad spies, who they believe was their fellow Alpha Squad down below. Bodies are lying in pools of blood, obviously dead, with no resonator in sight. They press on, but Phoenix is skeptical of what he saw there. A trap, maybe. Those dead bodies down there look awfully fishy. All their butts are exposed. <laughs> wonder what happened. <laughs> it's, a, it's a valid question, Marcus Phoenix. I don't even know what you're trying to insinuate there, but I would also wonder what happened. I think they're trying to lure me down there. <laughs> it looks, seems too obvious. They say, Phoenix would come down here. There's Leave the buttocks out. With a new area clear, a large, bald, Mr. Clean-looking commander tells them that they must press on to a building called the House of Sovereigns which may house the resonator they're looking for. On their way, they are met with more resistance, something that will happen a thousand times over in this series. And this time, Phoenix picks up a special weapon known as a Lancer. Oh, yeah. The Lancer is a machine gun at heart, but also has a chainsaw attachment, making traditional up-close melee combat a boring thing of the past. Mm -hmm. The chainsaw kill is a fixture in the Gears of War universe. Shortly after picking it up, a monstrous goon wanders too close to Marcus, who then revs up the engine and saws the enemy in half, starting at the head. Yeah. The dull growls of the chainsaw engine putter as blood drips off the barrel, and the enemy falls into two slabs of meat with a satisfying squash sound. Hell yeah, it's so awesome every time. This reminds me, sorry listener, gotta interject here with a quick word from our sponsor. Are you tired of having to defend your home from oncoming hordes of invasive war locust soldiers? Yeah. Trick question! You don't have time to be tired of that, because you're too busy keeping your garden trees trimmed. 
How is it possible to defend your home and be the envy of your neighbors, especially when you're an important business person and or an in-demand cross-departmental synergy consultant? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it sounds like you need the Lancer. Oh. The Lancer combines the horde-killing power of a machine gun with the tree-trimming power of a chainsaw. Wow. Or, if you don't have trees, the Lancer combines the horde-killing power of a machine gun with the horde-killing power of a chainsaw. It really could just be a chainsaw. But when your parents die and you return to your childhood home to settle their estate only to find the attic chock full of machine guns, well, you combine your fledgling landscaping business with your surprising and very shady dead parent side hustle into a two-in-one machine gun but mostly chainsaw tool of hardened destruction and yard beautification. Oh, wow. Next time you need to splat back and attack with a rat-a-tat-tat, but you also need your neighbor to fall to their knees in praise of your clean trees, get the Lancer. The only tool with a name that describes the opposite of what it does. It can shred muscle with bullets, split enemies along the torso, but it cannot lance. No, not even close. Get the Lancer. Wow. <laughs> I actually really want one now. <laughs> well, lucky you. Uh, you could enter uh, enter code Tails lesser 20 slash 14 8 and get some kind of discount at the website that they don't have. Wow, those nonsensical numbers should make it difficult to remember. I hope you can. <laughs> to remind you, we are still looking for that resonator. Our squad, the Delta Squad, is finally able to reach their destination and find a few members of the Alpha Squad. Thinking back to when they thought they spied the Alpha Squad deceased earlier is reckoned to have been a staged trap by the Locusts. Phoenix is smarter than he looks. Which says absolutely nothing about how smart he is. The A-Team, as it turns out, is okay. Immediately, as Delta Squad bursts on the scene, they can hear the loud voice of one of the Gears of War's more flavorful personalities, Private Augustus Cole, a.k.a. Coltrane. Woo! While in firefights, Cole is known for heckling and taunting his opponents. Looking off a balcony, the Delta Squad spots Cole surviving a firefight with the Locusts on his own and makes their way down to rescue him for some reason. <laughs> he seems to be handling himself pretty... Just fine. Yeah, he does all right. Cole has to be one of my favorite characters in the whole series. He has the Terry the Office linebacker meets Ric Flair energy. Just woo! <laughs> just constantly wooing and murdering. It's awesome. Cole tells them the rest of the Alpha Squad are holed up at a nearby tomb, and the reason they haven't alerted anyone is because their radio transmissions have been disrupted by something called cedars. Hmm. To reestablish communication, they will need to search the area and take out these cedars. While searching, we learn a little more about Cole from the conversations going on around Marcus. He was once successful in a sport called Thrashball, a harder-hitting and more violent evolution of football, and he was known for being ruthless, yet flamboyant, of course. He later became a gear soldier after joining the military. He's shown as a massive guy with enormous biceps and is said to stand six foot four and weigh 230 pounds, although rendering much, much heavier on screen. Big guy. He is most noted for his catchphrase... Travis, there we go. After a successful or particularly awesome kill. I love it. And I wish they would make a game based on Thrashball. I'm not real sure how it's played, but it sounds fun. Yeah, I mean, they describe it as a less safe version of football. So I would say rugby. I mean, you know rugby, right? It could, it could be rugby. It's probably rugby. It could rugby. just be rugby, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really speaking out of character, out of turn here. I have no idea what sports are. Um, <laughs> I, just, I, I just heard people. There's one guy, I think at school, who liked rugby. And he kept saying how much better it was than football, and that just stuck with me. So I've so I've now decided to alienate an entire population of people who love football hmm. based on this one time having heard some kid talk about rugby. Interesting. Good for you. As they continue their search, Marcus sees some giant bird-like claw tracks through blood leading around a corner. 
Beyond the corner is a massive hole stretching down into the abyss that looks like a drill bit as wide as a car drilled Sorry. down for miles. <coughs> <laughs> <coughs> I'm so sorry. Did you did you know what was coming up or something? No, I choked on my lemon, my lime. <clears throat> sorry. Oh, so <laughs> I'm sorry. I, just, I'm sorry. I was just over here doing my thing and just nearly died in front of you. I'm so sorry. I'm okay now. You know what? If if if, if when you do die, please make sure it's in front of me. And if, <laughs> and if you and if you won't make sure of that, I absolutely will. <laughs> oh dear God. Okay. <laughs> oh, Let's get back to this fun stuff we're having. Beyond the corner is a massive hole stretching down into the abyss that looks like a drill bit as wide as a car drilled down for miles. Confused by this, Marcus continues to search, hoping whatever he has to fight did not come from or even make that hole. I don't know if I could calmly walk away from such a sight, to be honest. <laughs> Dominic, get over here. You gotta see this. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. What is it? Look here. You see that? Oh, wow. That is one giant hole. What do you think that is? That doesn't look familiar to you at all. What? No, why would that look familiar? It's your mom's vagina. <laughs> it's a big giant hole, Dominic. Did you get why that was funny? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And good. I'll continue right. laughing about all of, laughing at all your jokes out of fear. Good. <laughs> they arrive at a door that will require their robot companion, Jack, to get through. Yeah, oh yeah, we should probably mention flying robots exist here. Yeah, it's strange there's just the one. You know, we're not fighting this entire war with armies of drones instead, but we, I don't know. They just made the one, I guess. Jack is a flying robot who provides some intel and is equipped with laser cutting abilities that help the squad get through some jammed metal doors. Jack tells them it will take a moment for him to cut through the door. At that moment, the squad is ambushed by a swarm of wrenches. These creatures gallop at packs like orangutans hunched over, using their arms to gather speed, but can easily walk on two legs if necessary. They cling to ceilings, walls, and whatever they can grip and are adept at dodging gunfire. They can even jump from the floor to the ceiling, which in this hallway with cathedral high ceilings is quite impressive. The squad turns and fires, mowing them down as they advance. These were the same creatures that stalked Marcus from above his prison cell earlier. And so I imagine Marcus and these creatures, you know, they have have a bit of a rapport. Hey, you, you stalking freaks. Hey, you, you constant masturbator. Hey, you. Wait, wait, what? Uh, well, I, I asked my boss so many times to be reassigned to stalking a different prison cell. <laughs> I, I couldn't deal with having to watch all that masturbation. You, you must be thinking of someone else. No, it was it was definitely you. Uh, you don't forget no face like yours. It's like, <laughs> like like eating a lemon and nails at the same time. Like, like there's pain and puckered lips and ugh. <laughs> a good one, uh, guys. Get a load of this guy, right? He's a riot, right? <laughs> he's not. Look, he's, look, nobody not wanted to stalk you in prison. All right, do you do you know just how off-putting a person's masturbation has to be for an entire army of bloodthirsty warriors to decline watch duty? Hey, hey buddy, buddy, look, you made you made your point. All right, like, very off-putting. Okay, like, very all right. off-putting. All right, all right. <laughs> Once those are dead. These soldiers enter a large courtyard where they come face to face with the aforementioned cedar creature, which turns out to be a spider-like bug, roughly the size of a two-story ranch-style home. Nope. No thanks. (laughs) Marcus, who has now equipped the Hammer of Dawn, uses this to take down the giant arachnid. We mentioned the Hammer of Dawn earlier, a barrage of these wiped-out civilization, and now Marcus is, you know, just carrying one around like it's no big deal. 
It looks like a gun, but only fires a laser grid onto the ground, which acts as a coordinate signal. If linked to satellites above, an enormous fire beam shoots down from the sky, incinerating anything in the area. It doesn't work all the time due to the limitation of satellite connections, but comes in handy against large enemies, particularly outdoors. Marcus ventures over to where the cedar had been, but all that's left is a Volkswagen-sized divot into the concrete slab in the courtyard where it once stood. Hey, Dominique, come here. Nope, I'm not falling for that. I'm not falling for that shit again. No, seriously, c come here a sec. I, I think the Hammer of Dawn is jammed or something. <sighs> okay, let me see it. Hey, that big hole there look familiar? <laughs> God damn it. Is that your mom's? <laughs> Stop. You get the joke, though, right? Yeah, I get the joke. Okay, MF. Good. Good. Marcus Phoenix. <laughs> Call you that now. No, no more MF. That's <laughs> your punishment. <laughs> Searching the surrounding area, the gear squad search for the rest of the cedars and wipe them out with the hammer of dawn, which was never actually jammed. See, that was just a skit, listener. <laughs> <laughs> Once those giant creepy crawlers have been eradicated, the Delta team plans to head back to the landing zone to meet with the Alpha squad so they can now use radios to call for a pickup. They fight to clear the landing zone of enemies and meet in the middle, jocularly competing over which squad can net the most kills. You know, guy stuff. Hey, turn around and let me smack your butt like a baseball player. <laughs> uh, you, you know, it's, it's actually weirder if you ask. Uh, how, how long were you in prison? Not long enough. <laughs> While waiting on the aircraft to land to pick them up, Marcus looks around and appears to sense that something isn't right. Oh, I know what it is. An aircraft in a video game is being relied upon for rescue. Gives me the shivers every single time. <laughs> As the others are talking, Marcus alone appears to be experiencing some secret sense of foreboding or dread. The pickup helicopter comes into view, and lo and behold, seconds later, a small horde of the flying locust monsters crash into the side of the helicopter, causing it to whirl out of control and crash into a nearby building. Mm. You know, it wouldn't be a Tales of the Lesser Medium episode without a devastating helicopter crash, and we're already up to two. Could be a record. I pray that it's not. <laughs> the chopper skids to a halt in the landing area, nearly wiping out both the Delta and Alpha squads, who are now on the move to take cover as the Horde is taking this moment of distraction as an opportunity to ambush. Marcus and others take cover behind some debris and try to fend off the encroaching Horde soldiers. Across the landing zone, through the fire, Marcus spots one of his comrades, Lieutenant Kim, all alone, firing at the enemies and motioning Marcus and his team to retreat and find cover. Out of Kim's view and approaching from behind is a sinister, even more evil-looking locust enemy, his leathery skin appearing sun-bleached and almost the color of a naked skull. Or hopefully the color of just a skull. I don't want to live in a world where most skulls have outfits. <laughs> his eyes are sucked far back into his sockets, and an expression of pure evil suggests this will not end well for Kim. Oh. The giant enemy donning a large, thick trench coat motions orders to his minions before walking up behind Kim and slugging him. He then picks up the day's lieutenant and forces eye contact before plunging a giant serrated sword into his guts and then disposes him into the nearby flames. Marcus watches this happen and, along with his squad mates, retreats back inside this house of Silverns. They rush up the steps as a legion of locust fighters march toward them, appearing set on trapping them inside. In the time between the sinister enemy appearing behind Kim and his eventual demise, it seemed Marcus had a chance to save him by calling for him to turn around or run, but you know, he chose not to. Yeah, 
You know, or he was just looking in that direction. You ever saw something you wish you hadn't because <laughs> it necessitates your involvement, but you're like, man, nah, I, I still got to go by the bank before it closes. I, I, I don't have time to deal with that old lady getting hit by a bus. I'll just look. I'll just, I didn't see that. I didn't see it. Now trapped inside the above ground tomb they retreated into, Phoenix uses his radio to request directions for a way out and relays that Lieutenant Kim was killed in action. Listen, I didn't actually see it happen. I was minding my own business and looked over there and was like, oh no, Lieutenant Kim died. When did that When did that happen? Plus, there was this old lady that got hit by a bus whom I definitely did rescue instead of going to the bank. Don't check any <laughs> camera footage about for that, please. <laughs> the radio voice instructs them to make their way to the courtyard on the opposite end of the building. At that moment, another squad mate blurts, well, we sure as shit can't stay here. And Marcus, now annoyed, walks to him and addresses him by name. You're Baird. The young-looking, spiky, blonde-haired soldier responds bluntly. Yeah, that's right, asshole. Question is, who are you? Is this supposed to be Cliffy B in the game? <laughs> He's got the spiky hair. He's a douche. It seems like it. He's got a B in his name. But the Venn diagram of spiky hair and douche is, is already pretty much a circle. <laughs> right, that's one, there's one circle. You're right. That's one circle. <laughs> <laughs> and then has a name with a B in it. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> but before Marcus can put the whippersnapper in his place, a scream echoes from down the hall. Another squad mate identifies it as a berserker. Hey, the second episode in a row here on Tales of Lesser Medium with, a, with an enemy called the berserker. Huh. Apparently, it can hear and smell their presence, and they must proceed quietly and on high alert through the tomb. Unfortunately, that's not what happens, as one soldier gets rattled, screams, and runs to his doom. Not sure how to proceed against a berserker, Phoenix radios control again, who tells him to forget about firing machine guns. They're going to need to whip the Hammer of Dawn back out, and for it to work, they'll need to lure the berserker to the courtyard so the satellite can get satellite coverage. Let's see, uh, I can only, uh, seem like I'm only able to get C-SPAN out here. Ugh. Okay, okay, uh, try going further to the right. Okay, uh, I can get channel 4, but it looks fuzzy. Oh, oh, uh, try, uh, the antenna, try moving the antenna a little bit. I'm moving the fucking antenna. Okay, okay, we'll just keep walking then, I guess. Oh, I can get PBS now, it seems. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, what, what, what's on? It looks like Sesame Street. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should keep trying to get that signal for the Hammer of Dawn. Right, yeah, of course. <laughs> that guy really likes cookies. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's not long before the sneaking soldiers come in contact with the Berserker, who charges through a nearby wall to greet them. The modus operandi for the Berserker, which is basically a nine-foot linebacker made out of rock, is to charge like a bull into whatever it wants to destroy. Walls or concrete columns may stop it in its tracks, but sometimes the berserker will pierce right on through. After seeing the cascading cinder blocks and dust left in the wake of this introduction to the powerful creature, Phoenix understands that standing in its way is not safe, but perhaps necessary. To lure the berserker across the sanctuary where locked doors halt progress, Marcus fires around into the air to get its attention and waits for it to charge at him, and then steps out of the way in time for the beast to crash the doors open. It's like a wily e. Coyote and Roadrunner sketch, except, you know, with a lot more blood. I always thought those cartoons should have had more blood. 
you know? Once into the courtyard, Phoenix summons the Hammer of Dawn. A beam of energy comes straight down, staggering the Berserker and changing the color of its exterior to signify to the squad that perhaps it is weakening and okay to fire on with machine guns. It takes a few more cycles of the Hammer of Dawn, chased with machine gun fire, to do it in. All right. Phoenix reports over the radio that he and Delta Squad have thwarted the Berserker and now have possession of the Resonator. Colonel Hoffman's voice comes back through and tells them that they must deploy the Resonator in a nearby factory and also declares Phoenix is in charge as of now. Hoffman has gone from leaving Phoenix to die to calling him a traitor to giving him a gun to naming him Sergeant all before dark. (laughs) Baird, the soldier from earlier who seems too big for his britches. And might be Cliffy B. Baird complains. Sure, don't give the smart guy a promotion. Give it to the jackass instead. Marcus ignores this, and the four Delta Squad members make plans to reach the factory on foot. I feel like I should be offended by that comment, but I don't really know what jackass means. Not a very smart guy, but just his tone. His tone. (laughs) Something about the tone. I'm more of an empathy guy, you know? I understand people, not words, you know? Right, right, right. Prison will do that to you. (laughs) Inside a neighboring building, they happen upon two boomers, which are tall, muscular locusts wielding grenade launchers called boom shots. They are big, dumb bullet sponges, but make for easy targets, standing easily five feet taller than Marcus and his mates. They're also slow, but can continue marching even as machine gun fire pelts them in the face. Using frag grenades and shotguns, the team is able to deal with the two boomers and run ahead just in time to see a corpser, another enormous spider-like creature, similar to a cedar but more agile and spider-looking, burrowing down into another giant hole nearby. Hey, Dom. No, yo. Fine, fine. I'll let it go this time. <laughs> it's hard to make the nerd voice when there's nothing no in the word. <laughs> Bark a snow. No, no. <laughs> Did you say snow? No. (laughs) (laughs) They decide to keep moving through the building, which they quickly learn has several locust enemies hiding out inside. I don't want it to escape anyone how terrifying these things truly are. That's why I I went through great lengths to make sure that the boomers and the corpsers and the cedars and the wretches and the all the all the things are mentioned here because, you know, Gears of War is a horror game at heart. Except one where you're armed to the gills. So the enemy designs in this game are perfect. They all have fun, memorable names, and they'll fuck your shit loose if you aren't ready. It's a, it's a good it's a good time. <laughs> Sounds awful. Once back outside, <laughs> the corpser reemerges and brings some locust friends along. As they fight the horde, the crew's banter suggests some infighting. Dom makes a reference to knowing a quote stranded that lives nearby who may be able to help them, and Baird responds in a way that implies he sees these stranded. They're referring to as lesser. Marcus continually tells Bear to shut up, and they continue their firefight with the locusts. By stranded, Dom is referring to humans who did not make it to Jacinto Plateau, where the military elected to use Hammer of Dawn strikes to attempt to wipe out the horde of locusts. These people just live in the fallout and rubble, homeless. It's a miracle they survived. Hmm. As they fight their way through the city, they happen upon a person hanging out amidst the rubble. So far, throughout their jaunt through the dilapidated fallout of the city streets, this is the only other non-military person they've come across, and it's clear he's no soldier or locust. He's just a man. He doesn't even have a pro-wrestling body like everyone else, like he's some (laughs) big homeless loser. He sits perched atop some nearby rubble, presumably enjoying his view of the violence down below. Marcus approaches him and asks if someone named Franklin is around. It turns out that this man was sitting atop a rather makeshift gate, and he opens it to allow the four Delta Squad members entry into their junkyard village. So who is Franklin? 
Franklin Tsuko is the leader of a stranded encampment and is friends with Dom because he helped Dom find his wife, Maria, once she had gone missing. Interesting. Hey, Franklin. Hey, Franklin. Have you seen my wife? She's gone missing. Oh, why would you assume I've been having sex with your wife? <laughs> ah, what? I, no one said that. Wait, are, are, you, are you having sex with my wife? No. No. Absolutely not having sex with her or her mouth. The, the way you flaunted the word no in front of my face, knowing that I have a very difficult time saying no in my characteristic nerd voice, tells me that maybe, maybe you are having sex with my wife. No. <laughs> it's not what you think. Define sex. You know, putting penis in a vagina or a butt or something. No. <laughs> no. Oh, look. <laughs> What a cloudy day. Ah, <laughs> oh, sweet. <laughs> I love it. How, you know I love clouds. All right, have fun hanging out with my wife. Okay. La, 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 la. I was close. That guy almost caught me having sex with his wife. Hey, wait a minute. I hadn't whoa, left whoa. yet. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> I just made a decrescendo sound in my voice to make it seem as though I was running away. Gotcha. Oh, man. And I'm not going to do anything about it because I am weak. <laughs> <laughs> I can just say, please don't do that anymore. <laughs> Franklin's outpost of Stranded is called Ephira. Here in Ephira, a man named Santiago keeps a military vehicle they call a Junker around somewhere. Marcus and the gang reckon that driving the Junker would be a good way to mobilize and get to the factory for deploying the resonator. Santiago isn't keen on giving it up and refuses the team of armed military soldiers access to his ride. After some back and forth, Santiago finally agrees under terms that the two gears stay behind to stand guard and protect the outpost, while the other two go get it from a, quote, nearby gas station. Dom and Marcus take the keys and start journeying toward the location of the Junker. So, uh, that's the guy your wife had sex with. <laughs> hey, hold up. How did, she, how did you know about that? She told me one night. <laughs> Wait! Mm. When, did, when did she tell you that? You've been in prison for... Oh, you know... How long has this been going on? <laughs> hey, look over there at that giant hole. That remind you of anything? <laughs> uh, yes, it reminds me of my mom's vagina. <laughs> I hate everything. <laughs> uh, got it. <laughs> Night falls as they fight their way through the city to the location Santiago specified the junker would be. As the sun goes down, a new enemy emerges. Krill. They don't attack yet, but enormous swarms of them can be seen flying out from their hiding spots in the city, darkening the distant cityscape, barely illuminated by the moon. The Krill won't attack Marcus and company as long as they stay in the light, and thankfully, despite all the destruction here, a few curiously powered street lamps remain lit. Huh. There are also barrels with raging fires whose flames never peter out that litter the city and stave off the vicious Krill which are basically miniature flying sharks with a lust for eating flesh in the dark. Oh boy. It's not all that convenient. It's not all that convenient. However, there are some sections of the city that lay in complete darkness. And thanks to having never seen an episode of Mythbusters, the developers programmed all of the orphaned propane tanks that are spaced around to burst into flames when exploded, thus thwarting the krill and lighting the way. All right. Dom and Marcus fight their way through the dilapidated city, shooting locusts that emerge from the ground while staying behind cover whenever possible and exploding enough propane to make Hank Hill shit his Texas sunbleached jorts. God damn it. <laughs> At some point, they run into a drunk 
a guy, I don't know, just a guy, you know, he's just holding a beer bottle and seems to be guarding some kind of old house turned outpost. Hey, you state your name. Ha! Look at them fool-ass faces. Franklin sent us. Yeah, well, no shit. I know what you're doing here, damn it. We're looking for Chap's gas station. Oh, yeah? Well, good luck. Ain't no lights between here and there. I guess your ass is doomed, huh? <laughs> oh, you think so? Uh, whatever. Go in the house. I'll run the lights. Jack, stay here and open a comm link with this guy. Oh, yeah, okay. I'll talk to your trash can here. You guys can count on me. Don't screw up. Hey, man. I screw up. I'll never see your ass again. Because you'll be dead. <laughs> I'm gonna kill this guy. Dom and Marcus fight through the house, which just so happens to be crawling with wretches, the orangutan-like creatures that gallop low to the ground and can leap up to maul your face in an instant. Shotguns make quick work of these two, and so the two soldiers make their way through the building and down a nearby hill to the gas station that houses the Junker. When close, they hear an old man's voice say, Over here, you dumb shits! <laughs> which seems unnecessary since that is the direction Marcus and Dom are already going, and the only place within view worth going to because it is very well lit. It would appear this guy was expecting Marcus. We'll assume Santiago gave him a call to tell them gears were on their way to grab the vehicle. This grouchy old asshole is my favorite character. He just fucking hates everyone. First time he's seen another human being in 14 years, and he's just calling them dumb shits and screaming at them. I love it. <laughs> When they get to him, he complains that they've ruined the neighborhood with all of their grenades and firefighting and that they've attracted all of the locust and krill to the gas station, which is probably true. He then tells them that he didn't bother filling up the junker with fuel before they got there because he didn't think they would make it there alive. <laughs> <laughs> After they go turn on the fuel valve, the old man waves them back inside and tells them to take the ammo he stashed in the back. A nice gesture for sure, but he then warns them not to mess with his register in the back as if money is worth anything anymore. At about that time, a horde of locusts are heard making their way toward the gas station. The old man yells, Oh, shit! And takes out his revolver, firing blindly into the street. This guy kicks ass. You don't survive in a gas station during the apocalypse for 14 years being <laughs> soft. He's covered in Funyun dust and machine grease and shoots way too many guns near fuel supplies. He's my favorite. The assault on the gas station is relentless. Boomers fire their grenade-launching boom shots with reckless abandonment toward the fuel center. Wretches trot in from all directions, and machine-gun-wielding locusts pop out from behind every inch of cover to fire pot shots at Marcus, Dom, and the crotchety old man. And though they can't be seen, it's clear the Krill are out there waiting for any dark opportunity to strike. Once the wave of enemies subdues, Marcus and Dom take the opportunity to jump inside the junker, which doesn't appear very junky at all. It is a robust tank-like vehicle with armor, fog lights, and artillery. It would have no problem with any enemies encountered thus far. They hop in and make their way back to Franklin's outpost to retrieve Cole and Baird. Why would the Stranded leave this perfectly well-suited form of murdering motherfuckers on the go tucked away in a garage when they could have been kicking ass with it? The old man should have been rampaging in this thing <laughs> since it was in his garage this whole time. He could have been going anywhere he wanted to. But the, the, whole, the open highway, just the crotchety old man... And, and the open road. I can't, oh, it would have been... Ah, is, is that Mad Max? Is that what Mad, Mad Max is about? Hey, he's survived 14 years in this gas station, as you said. Somehow, 
you know? And I think the way he did that was not by venturing out into the wilderness. <laughs> fair. <laughs> so, That's fair. Despite the presence of fog lights on the vehicle when the gears found it, apparently the junker can't be operated with the lights on as Marcus and Dom have to rely on a UV turret to fire a beam of light at an approaching swarm of krill to dissipate them. There are several relentless swarms swirling through the night sky. Marcus drives this vehicle through the claustrophobic ruins of the city streets while Dom operates the UV turret to keep the krill at bay. At some point, Marcus quips that he would rather have stayed at the gas station. Oh my god, I would have loved that. Hey, 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 what did you what did you say your name was, crotchety old man? Old crotchety is fine. Great. Say there, old crotchety, is there any more of that beef jerky out in front of the gas station here? No, actually, I, I ate all of that in the first week. I thought this whole thing was going to blow over. You thought after an 80-year war that the next war would last a week? Yeah, I'm very old. My sense of time isn't very good. <laughs> I grew up in the probably 1980s, okay? I'm, I'm, <laughs> which I think was three weeks ago. Wow, you are dumber than shit. Hey, listen, what about the slushy machine? Huh? Did you, the slushy you... machine is kind of operable. Describe slushy. Okay, well, all right, you got uh, a it's a there's a flavor there, usually red or blue. Okay, it, yep, it go, it, it, there's it, some red and blue back there. Syrupy, very syrupy, it's sweet. Yep, syrupy and it, sweet. It comes got down, it. mixes with like a water, kind of like a carbonated water thing, goes into some ice. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're describing the internal guts of the krill. Yeah, there's a few krill no, back no, no, there no, no, that no, you no. can just scoop into. We got no. some uh, some ice cream scoopers uh, that you can do. It's uh, a cup. We it's also a cup got these cups. Yeah, it's a cup with a puppy on it. I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got we got plenty of those cups of the puppies. Just go ahead and scoop no. that down into the krill's guts. I don't get like so, that part. Get yourself some red and blue syrup. Uh, I would need it if I were you. But then again, I'm an old man who doesn't understand time. Oh yeah, this is not. This is. You know what? I'll pass on the slushy. I, I appreciate. I appreciate it. All right, but now you've got me curious. <laughs> 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 when they get back to Afira to collect Baird and Cole, it's under attack. Thanks to the attention of Marcus and Dom's extra firepower and macho one-liners, the assault fizzles out and the outpost is successfully defended. For now, the four gear soldiers hop back into the junker and continue on. In the next scene, the Junker is still traveling, now presumably miles away from the city where we once were. The wheels slosh through shallow water and over rocks. Tall, dark trees surround them, and no lights are visible in the distance. Eventually, the Junker shows its junk-like nature, and the rear catches fire, and the vehicle eventually stalls. The four soldiers get out, now on foot and in the middle of nowhere, in the dark. Do Krill hang out in the woods? I gotta hope not. I hope not. Despite how rule they appear at the moment, their radios still work. Marcus finds out through the control center that the best way forward is through some mines accessible via a nearby abandoned factory. They will want to deploy the resonator way down there. Huh. Mines don't seem like a good idea. Those are also dark. <laughs> Eventually, they find a way inside the factory, but encounter roadblocks requiring security codes to power generators. In search of these items, they once again encounter... A guy, you know, just a, just another guy. That's our third guy. Or fourth, <laughs> in the hunt, In the hunt for anything resembling a security code, Marcus goes to open a nearby door. Once open, he slowly scans the room, only to see a man pop out from behind some debris and fire a shotgun in his direction. Instead of retaliating immediately and eviscerating the attacker, Marcus somehow realizes immediately 
that the man is not a locust, but rather a, a guy. Just a guy. Marcus says, Cease fire, dipshit. After some consideration, the man reckons the gears have been sent here to finally rescue him. And he declares that he is ready to go. But Marcus takes the wind out of the man's sails and tells him they'll be using him to help find the security codes they were looking for. And the man reluctantly agrees. Oh, man, this poor bastard. <laughs> the team make their way down to the base of the factory where the mine entrance is supposedly located. In one section, old and seemingly rotted planks of wood serve as a makeshift floor across rafters in the factory. The man they just met becomes a guinea pig for traversing through the area and manages to locate a few planks that couldn't hold his weight, causing him to plummet through the floor into whatever was below. Mm. Marcus peeks down the hole just in time to see the screaming man devoured by hungry wretches. Oops. <laughs> this causes Marcus to simply call out to everyone else. Hey, watch your staff. <laughs> a few seconds later, Marcus himself finds a plank that couldn't support him, and he falls to the lower level, thankfully landing on his feet. The glowing wretches scramble toward him, hungry for more. But Marcus's well-aimed shotgun blasts take them out. He finds a ladder and climbs back up. Did that man... Just a guy. Okay, did, did, did that just a guy really have to die in this situation? He, he did not. And he, he did not get the memoriam he deserved. Although I guess Marcus could say, you know, Hey, that fucking guy shot at me first and I didn't kill him immediately like I probably should have. Either way, a moment of silence for the rotten wood detector guy. Eventually. A, a little longer. Okay. Eventually, the team fight their way to the cart control room located in the far depths of the factory where the entry of the mines rests. They power it on, and surprisingly, they're in business. It always baffles me when old things just start up in these stories. My lawnmower can't go a winter in the shed without needing serious attention before working again. <laughs> they hop into a cart and set off for a journey akin to Donkeyong Country. Minus all the floating bananas and magic red life balloons, Bummer. here the game itself turns into a literal on-rails shooter. Locusts turn up on the edges of the rail system to fire on the soldiers who fire back between stints of ducking down inside the carts. I personally love how excited Cole is to be on the rails. Constant hooting hollers. The man would have really enjoyed roller coasters if he didn't live on a planet of perpetual war and ruin. It's kind of sad, really. <laughs> the carts continue further down and away from the above-ground factory before stopping somewhere deep, deep down. Curiously, Marcus's radio signal with Control still works from down here. Control tells them to make their way to the drilling platforms up ahead, but that's easier said than done. Locusts, specifically wretches, are hiding out there too. They loom in the dark corridors and leap out from behind darkened recesses, requiring Marcus and his team to fire their shotguns from the hip toward the faintest glow of their eyes. It would make sense that more locusts are here, near a subterranean drilling platform, as the locusts originally spewed from the earth due to the overmining that was being done. This is the part of any story like this, Lord of the Rings included, where it's like, you know, what was going on during the other hundreds of years of war when four dudes could just take a minecart <laughs> to the heart of the beast? All you need is it's a true. gun. Yeah, all you need is a gun that splits time with a chainsaw and one rotten wood detector guy. And I'm not even sure you really need that guy. <laughs> Eventually, they locate a lift that takes them further down into a large cave system. Dom remarks that it smells like krill shit down here. <laughs> Remember, they're down here to set off the resonator. The resonator will map out the underground locust hollows to guide the light mass bomb that, when deployed, will wipe all the locusts out from underground. Meanwhile, they are searching for the pumping station that extracts the emulsion from underground, with the thought that it will be the best location for deploying the resonator. Kind of like... If you're lost in the woods but find water, 
follow the flow of water and it will lead you somewhere likely more water <laughs> i don't know if that's actual survival advice but it, de- it it but it is definitely how you find more water <laughs> that's true so this is the way to find water when you're lost is to find water and then follow it <laughs> got it yeah unfortunately for the gears it's heavily guarded by locusts sophisticated enough to wield automatic weapons unsophisticated wretches who kamikaze at the gears out of blind hunger and another giant corpser the spider-slash-scorpion monster roughly the size of a two-story house that can burrow underground and pop back up like the most terrifying version of whack-a-mole ever conceived. How about no thanks? <laughs> the gears unload on the giant hissing creature, seemingly only making it angrier. It stabs at them with its enormous pincer-like feet, narrowly missing on killing them several times. Eventually, Marcus notices that the platform the corpser has backed onto can be detached. It was meant to float onto the lava-like emulsion like a small barge, Marcus wisely shoots the connectors, detaching the platform that sinks into the bubbling hot substance due to the immense weight of the enormous arachnid, melting it in seconds. It makes one last attempt to resurface, striking its powerful rock-like pincers against the ground in search of traction to pull itself out. Marcus stares on unflinchingly as the corpser sinks backward and into the bottom, hissing all the way. The pumping station is just a few hundred feet away, and they arrive just in time for a firefight. Yeah. When asked if they thought they were overdoing it with the number of guards the locusts put on the pumping station, Marcus here responds with, uh, well, we're not here to sell cookies. Clearly being reminded of that Cookie Monster episode he saw earlier, but no, he really said that <laughs> in the game. But that always had me thinking, like, what a great game this would be if the Gears were just Girl Scouts and the whole mission was to get those grouchy old locusts to take a chance on Thin Mints. <laughs> be amazing. But you got a point there, because, you know, he's not much of an army guy if he's going to question the locusts' placement of guards near the thing that was attacked. So, so, so the answer is no, dude. I don't think they overdid it with the number of guards. In fact, <laughs> and this is a lesson from Soldiering 101. Yeah. They probably underdid it with a number of guards, as, you know, evidenced by the fact that we are alive and they are not. Yeah, that's fair. Locusts have heavily guarded the pumping station with upgraded versions of their most basic soldiers, now pleated with more armor and heavier artillery. Once dealt with, the gears then place the resonator, kick it on, and take an elevator up and out to the surface, which seems overly convenient after the roundabout and shitty route through the factory and mines that they took to get down there in the first place. As the gears come to the surface, the resonator detonates, sending a shockwave outward that causes the soldiers to trip and fall to the ground. Marcus tells Control over the radio that the resonator has been deployed and Control calls in their retrieval via aircraft. Hell yeah, it's fucking over! Suck it, locust! I hope you like- oh, Things go south quickly, though. Ah, uh, did the helicopter explode during takeoff? <laughs> did it, Marcus. Stand by. King Ravens are en route. So are we going back to base? I guess so. Good, cause I'm done. Food, man. Hot food. All day long. Delta! Bad news. It didn't work. What do you mean, it didn't work? In a flashback sequence, we see that the resonator only partially mapped the tunnels, and over the radio, Marcus learns that they would need at least a hundred resonators to map the entire network of tunnels. Whew. Fortunately, at that moment, Baird produces a geobot he may have found on the ground. Now, it's not clear where he got it, uh, but a geobot is a flying robot capable of mapping the tunnels, apparently. He quickly just hacked that one to see the tunnels and show his team. It turns out that the geobots were made in Adam Phoenix's lab. Adam Phoenix is Marcus's dad. 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. So let me get this straight. Marcus led a small army underground to deploy a resonator that ultimately served next to no purpose. And he had no idea his own dad had already developed a technology capable of mapping all the tunnels without putting people in danger. And they just managed to find one of these things on the ground <laughs> when they left the tunnels. And then Baird was able to, quote-unquote, hack it to see the tunnels and the time it took them to get hit by a shockwave, fall to the ground. One of them complained about how hungry they were, and then they just found out that the, the resonator didn't work. Like, all that happened, like, right there. We Yes. <laughs> okay, got it. So the gears are now rerouted to Marcus's home to find his dad's database of Geobot maps. Due to the firepower of the locusts in this area, no one felt safe flying a chopper far into the enemy territory, which, as Tales of the Lesser Medium hosts, we, we appreciate. Amen. So they so they drop the gears off in the outskirts of the city where Marcus is from. They will need to fight their way through locust-filled city streets to make it back to Marcus's home, where his father's lab is. This kicks off a long series of predictable firefights between the gears and the locusts that covers several city blocks. Okay. A little more about Adam Phoenix, Marcus's dad. Adam is a retired gear soldier who fought in the Pendulum Wars, the 79-year-long battle for resources detailed earlier. Adam Phoenix then became a professor at LaCroix University. Yes, LaCroix. Just like the sparkling water. That shit is gross. <laughs> this is an odd contrast, given that his son Marcus comes across as a bit of a terse meathead at times. Yeah. Adam led the final development of the Hammer of Dawn, the enormously powerful weapon we've referenced here earlier, but despite developing the Apocalypse Catalyst, or Hammer of Dawn, he wished for a peaceful end to the Pendulum Wars instead, which obviously didn't happen. This arc for Adam Phoenix mirrors Albert Einstein's experiences with the Manhattan Project and the A-bomb he helped develop to end World War II despite his wishes for a peaceful resolution instead. Adam is believed to have died during the Battle of Ephira between Gears and Locusts eight years before where this game started. Huh. Interesting. So anyway, once they make it back to the Phoenix estate, it's immediately clear that Marcus and his family are, or rather were, wealthy. The mansion, despite areas falling to rubble, still appears as a lavish beacon amidst a war-torn landscape. Finally, after fighting through a maze of buildings, labs, and parts of a conservatory, they make it to the top of the hill where the actual Phoenix residence rests. It looks in no better shape than anything else nearby. Upon entry, armed locusts spew from a hole in the floor. Hey, Dom! I see a fucking hole, Marcus. Oh, I wasn't going to do the whole bit again. <laughs> oh, okay then, well, what do you want? Your wife again? <laughs> no, seriously though, that hole looked familiar over there, you see that hole? <laughs> yeah, got him, got his ass. <laughs> After eradicating the locusts and clearing the mansion, Marcus breaks through a door that leads down long branching corridors to a rusty old gate. Marcus cranks the gate open and descends down into a stonewalled, dungeon-esque part of his childhood home. There's no indication to whether he knew his childhood home possessed an underground fortress before, or if he just found out about it now in search of his dad's lab. Dude, Caleb, how cool would it be to find out later that your childhood home had a sweet laboratory underneath where your dad was just down there all day long, just fucking tearing through baggies of cocaine? <laughs> be kind of sweet. <laughs> It would have been it would have been pretty sweet. That would have been my my new ninja uh, home, and uh, <laughs> I also would have been mad that that my dad isn't doing anything with the laboratory. He's just like sitting there doing cocaine. But like, the, there's a laboratory with stuff, you know. Like someone could use that, but he's maybe like, nah. He's, this, maybe this he's, he's making cocaine. super cocaine. You don't know. <laughs> he's not making it. He's just 
tearing through baggies of cocaine. That, that was your description, not mine. <laughs> Eventually, he finds a secret door just as more locusts spot them. Marcus rushes in, and once inside, he flips on the lights and powers up the darkened room. Here, Marcus spies his dad's computer, and luckily, it still possesses all the data on the locust tunnels. He takes it, and they leave. How convenient. Very. Leaving is easier said than done, though. They must fight their way through and out of the mansion to get back to the junker. As soon as they hop in the vehicle to speed away, they receive company. An enormous dinosaur-like creature about five stories tall starts lumbering behind them. Oh, shit. And not just any big old dinosaur either. This one is armored and outfitted with wrist-mounted chain guns. It, it, it kind of rules, but also sucks if you're its target. <laughs> yeah. Marcus floors the gas pedal and speeds away with the hopes of leaving this creature known as a brumach behind in the dust. Thankfully, the brumach runs out of breath, and the gears survive to tell about it. With the ability to map the locust-ridden tunnels firmly in hand, their next goal is to catch the train transporting the light mass bomb, the very bomb they intend to use to wipe those tunnels clean of locusts. The train isn't stopping, though. It's too risky with the horde of locusts out and about, and so they literally have to hop on the speeding train as it whirs by. Marcus and Dom are able to dive on board, leaving Cole and Baird behind, cursing. Hammer of Dawn is offline. Damn it, we suck! We'll catch you right on Raven. Sorry, guys. It's okay. Anya, what are we looking at? Okay, uh, the bomb is at the front of the train, and there are plenty of locusts on board. You've got to get going now. Let's move out. It's immediately apparent that locusts are already on the train. It's up to Marcus and Dom to wipe them out to keep the light mass bomb from being tampered with or destroyed by its would-be victims. The locusts don't make this easy, of course, and eventually a berserker, the rock-armored enemy that blindly bull charges, has made another appearance. On a narrow train car with limited places to go, the berserker makes for a tough fight, but Marcus wisely lures it to a specific train car and triggers the release, causing the berserker to go bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Just when a reprieve is needed, giant flea-like enemies the size of cars hover alongside the train cars, firing on the gears as well. Well, that's no fun. Tens of thousands of machine gun bullets later, Marcus and Dom reach a train car where a familiar foe emerges, the extra evil-looking locust who slayed Lieutenant Kim in the street earlier as a paralyzed Marcus Phoenix looked on, now emerges slowly from the other end of the train. He waltzes toward the gears like he just heard his WWE entrance music ring out. By God, that's General Rom's music! <laughs> Krill swirl around him, indicating that getting too close would be trouble. Dom and Marcus take cover and form a plan. But who is this ruthless foe? His name is General Rom. Yeah, you don't, wait, you don't know his entrance music? No, I, I mean, I do now. I feel like I got a piece of it a little bit ago. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. He's the locust leader and an all-around son of a bitch. Mm -hmm. He has plenty of backstory of his own, but all that's important to know here is that he's leading the locust attack that Marcus and crew are fighting against and killing him would, would just be so great. It would be great. Be good enough for me. You know, let's fucking do it. Let's kill him. <laughs> Marcus and Dom must make the most of what they have on hand to scatter the krill and take open headshots at Rom, who can take several sniper shots to his super ugly face. Rom sicks his krill on the gears, forcing them into the light that is now that is now provided by a chopper that has come to provide assistance. Sweet! Wait, no. <laughs> Tell the chopper to keep us safe crashing distance! Get away from the chopper! 
<laughs> let's hope. Let's hope it doesn't crash. Okay. okay. All right. After an intense firefight, Marcus Phoenix aims one well-aimed and perfectly timed shot into the heart of a weakened Rom who falls on the train car into a puddle of his own foul locust blood. Fuck yeah! The action isn't over yet. <laughs> Dom leaps into the chopper that now dangerously flies beside the train and rejoins his rescued comrades Cole and Baird. Marcus doesn't yet, though. He quickly makes it to the car carrying the light mass bomb and triggers it for launch on the control panel, presumably uploading the tunnel maps to it as well. The camera zips ahead, showing that the tracks the train is on eventually gets to a bridge, but the bridge is broken in the middle. An abyss of several hundred feet over a river of emulsion now replace the tracks that once stood. No good. Marcus's fellow gears beckon him to leap to the chopper, but Marcus remains on the car for no apparent reason Get, until the very last moment and then leaps to the chopper as the light mass bomb plummets below and fires off the guided missiles as it falls. Cutscenes show the bombs navigating the tunnels and exploding around dozens of subterranean locust strongholds and effectively wiping out hundreds of the horde. I mean, there was just no need for that heightened drama, Marcus. What do you think? He was on Jackass 5? Just get on the fucking chopper. I guess, like, for some reason, uh, he's just really hesitant about riding on video game helicopters, you know? Wow. Did we come to the conclusion that Marcus might be smart? <laughs> I don't know what the word smart means, but I can tell you this. I'm pretty smart. I got some of it. My dad was a smart. <laughs> I can't think of the next word, huh? Marcus no, he was, a, he was just a smart. <laughs> he was one of them. Yeah. He was I, am one a of not, I was called a not smart. <laughs> I always check that box there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never thought, but but using an article like that in front of the word smart does seem to, in, it, it has sort of a racist <laughs> tinge. There goes one of them smarts. Oh, yeah. Them dirty smarts. Oh, <laughs> hanging around here being smart. Ugh. With their math and their counting and whatever else. The, the once antagonistic Hoffman is also there to help Marcus into the aircraft. A speech of the Gears' victory is then played. Earlier today, your Gears successfully deployed the light mass bomb. We have destroyed the enemy stronghold. This war has exacted a heavy price from others. It has torn our world apart. But you have my word that we will rise again. Then another voice is heard speaking ominously. They do not understand. They do not know why we wage this war. Why we cannot stop. Will not stop. Why we will fight and fight and fight. Until we win. An enormous winged beast is seen swooping down from the mountains above, clearly not impacted by the light mass bombs that just exploded underground. That was the voice of Queen Mira, the voice of consciousness of the locust hive mind. And that's it for the first Gears of War. All right, I see a sequel setting up nicely here. It's you a good know? thing there is, because we tend to do these things in groups of four. Yeah, so, uh, it's true. <laughs> for no sequel, that would have been a horrible mistake. <laughs> I, I kind of always like to pretend it's the first time I'm hearing of the story, even <laughs> though I've been balls deep in it for weeks working on it with you. <laughs> that explains all of your, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> really? 
I do. I do like a good. I do like the story told. But uh, yeah, no. I, as is usual, when I play through games, I don't always catch every beat of the story. Sometimes it's, I'm just there to shoot shit. And this is one where going back through it, I was like, oh, there is kind of a story here, isn't there? And it's kind yeah. of fun. A little, a little too many helicopters for my taste. I'll say that. <laughs> I'm. Well, thankfully they they didn't last long. So <laughs> yeah. you know your fear of helicopters. It serves its purpose. You know, we mm-hmm. we were what? Oh, I don't even know what our what our helicopter average is. We need to start working that up after each episode. But I think about half of them exploded in this one. Yeah. So And it's weird because I think listeners, people who have been around since the very beginning, God bless you. Uh, <laughs> they probably think we specifically pick series where helicopters explode. <laughs> no, it's a surprise every time. Yeah. And we're really like, is. oh, well, here we go. And so I think there's a I think there's an emerging trope of just these types of action games where Hollywood's been doing it for years, so video yeah. games got to do it too. Just blow some helicopters. Because I think I just visually, they can do so many things as they're falling. They can just fall straight down. They can sort of spin around as spin. they're falling. Yeah. They're nimble in the air so they can get into tight places and really cause havoc. And so it's just a fun visual spectacle. Yeah. And I think in a lot of games, like if you want to, if you want to have a few different set pieces, you need, you need them to travel long distances, mm-hmm. you know. You put a helicopter and you gotta in the You got to get rid of the traveling mechanism so that they can't escape those areas. Exactly. And yeah. so- Gotta, gotta shoot down the helicopter. And it, it can't be a jet. That's too fast. You gotta have a helicopter, so it's mm-hmm. a little rocky to get over there, you know? I kind of so. want to see one of those pedal those pedal bikes that never actually flew, you know, back when they were trying oh. to invent airplanes. Yeah. There's like a little weird pedal. I want to see one of those just drop off a bunch of gears grunts. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. And they yeah. could probably pedal it, too, because they got these big thigh muscles, and they got that real muscular shape, whatever that mm-hmm. is, a muscle I made up in the intro, and that's somewhere <laughs> in the legs, I'm sure. And I want to hear, I want to hear the... What what will really sell this scene is as long as we can hear the squeaky thing turning as they pedal. Like, squeak, squeak, squeak. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd play that game. Me too. We should we should make that game. It's called Gears of Air Trike, <laughs> and it's the same thing except there's no helicopters. All the helicopters are replaced with air trikes. It's more of a mod, <laughs> but it's pretty good. It's worth a playthrough. <laughs> but no, what did you think? Uh, you know, after you you got through it, you read it, were you like, oh, there's more to this than just big muscular fellows with big burly voices? Or were you like, no, this sucks. I hate it. <laughs> um, I think there's probably just as much story as I would have imagined there'd be. I mean, I find it what I what I tend to find is that most well-known, highly regarded games have uh, at least of a, of the of the sort of sh- even the, sh- the shooter genre the action genre whatever you want to call it most of those do have a story so it's really rare that i think a, a game that has no story at all or has really bad story is as highly regarded as something like gears of war at least nowadays you know back mm-hmm. in the day doom of course there was there's that a shooter was a shooter was a shooter now there's so many shooters that you need something else to keep people invested and so it didn't surprise me too much. It's such a popular game, such a popular franchise that I think it just kind of made sense that there'd be a good story there or at least a, a, a solid enough story to hold the elements together. I think more than the story, to be honest, I think the characters in Gears are really good. They're, they contrast well with each other. They're very loud and flamboyant. They all kind of fit. I don't want to say like a stereotype, but they have they each have their place and it makes for a fun dynamic a lot of the time. So we'll see more of that in the coming games for sure, but you get a, you get a big a big introduction of a few of them here that uh, you know Cole and, and Marcus obviously. So very cool. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it. That's going to do it for this one here. Uh, be sure to subscribe and just so you know, we're doing it a little bit differently for this here season. We'll be releasing these seasons episodes just a week apart. 
So we're trying something new. So they won't come out in just one big old block like normal. Uh, you get it. You get a trickle fed into you. You know, like uh, like morphine or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I've never had morphine, but imagine it trickles <laughs> in. You know, I don't know. Uh, so n- next week you'll find Gears of War two there on your old feed if you subscribe. So please do that. Yeah, and uh, if you wouldn't mind, maybe send a tweet over to at Tales Lesser, Tales, T-A-L-E-S-L-E-S-S-E-R, Tales Lesser, and just let us know how you like that that drip feed of morphine into your into your feed, um, as opposed to one giant brick of morphine into your feed. I think I, morphine's <laughs> in bricks, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and and while you're out there thinking about us, why not think about us and, and rate us and review us also? We, we need more reviews that we can read as our favorite characters. Fans of this series will know, fans of this podcast will know that we tend to do that at the beginning of episodes, and it's a lot of fun for us. So leave us some reviews. There's a good chance it might get read. Uh, yeah. So yeah, reach out to us on Twitter. As I said, Tales Lesser. Uh, you can reach out to me. I'm at Caleb J. Ross, or you can reach out to Travis. He's at Trav Plays Games. And just let us know what you think of this uh, of this uh, podcast. Let, you know, let us know what you think of Gears. And just chat. You can do that too. Yeah, just chat. You can also send us an angry email about anything Caleb got wrong to polykillpodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. I'm invincible to all critique. And uh, please, please be sure to visit polymedianetwork.com. We got more stuff. We got more podcasts out there. Indie Quest, Petey's Power Hour, Drug Friend. You name it, there's probably another one. Intro and outro theme is from our dear friend. He's not our friend. He just, I asked him, he said yes. Brad sucks. <laughs> He's great. Check out Brad. <laughs> And thank you for listening. And the tale has been told! <laughs>